Good morning. Good morning. Am I one loud enough there? There we go. I hear me. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you guys today. I'm going to jump in quick here to my message because I've got a few extra parts I want to throw in to, to locate where we are in our summer Bible jam. How many guys are keeping up with summer Bible jam? How many guys have fallen behind in summer Bible jam? All right. Pretty good number there. Listen, it, it's, it's pretty simple to catch up, right? There's, there's not a ton of stuff to read, but there's just enough to, to keep you moving and give you some good insights along the way. So before you get too far into the study, catch up, find a couple of days where you can just kind of read and, and, and stay on track with what God's trying to show us. Here, I'm going to just jump right into this first quote uh, to give you some, some boundaries for what we're talking about today. The title of the message today is The King and His Domain. And, you know, one of the things that every one of us has in common this morning, no matter where you are in the storyline of your own life, is we're trying to make sense of the story of our life. If there's anything motivating everybody in the room is we're, we're trying to make sense of what's my story what am I supposed to be about? Who am I and why am I? And what do I do next? And how do I make this journey through life meaningful? Well, one of the things that we started with this study of, the, of God's great story in the Bible is this premise. If God's the originator of everything that exists and therefore he has created everything, then there's no way for you or me to understand my story if I don't first understand his story. And the great mistake that I think humanity makes is to just delve into our own story, get this tunnel vision, staring at just the edges of my own shoes and trying to figure out who am I and why am I and what do I do? Who do I get around? How do I behave? I don't do that. I do this. That's valuable. That's not valuable. There, there's no way to create that sort of value system for our story if we don't get God's story first, because we're a part of a bigger story. And so this is a very helpful insight from a man named J.I. Packer. Now, some of you guys like to chase down some of these quotes. He's written a, a really small, I think it's a compilation of some other things that he's written called The Plan of God. You can get it for about 99 cents on Kindle, if you're a Kindle reader. And anything by J.I. Packer, by the way, read. If, you, if you're thinking about reading the sports page or J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer, he's the guy. All right, let's look at his thought here from his book, The Plan of God. He says, without God, man loses his bearings in this world. And he cannot find them again until he has found the one whose world it is. God made our life. And God alone can tell us its meaning. If we are ever to make sense of life in this world, we must know about God. And if we want to know the facts about God, we shall be wise to turn to the Bible. Let us read the Bible then, if we can. But can we? The truth is that many of us have lost the ability to read the Bible. When we open our Bibles, we do so in a frame of mind which forms an insuperable barrier to our ever reading it at all. This may sound startling, but it's not hard to show that it's true. When you sit down to any other book, you treat it as a unit. You look for the plot or the main thread of the argument and follow it through to the end. You let the author's mind lead yours. But 
When we come to Holy Scripture, our behavior is different. In the first place, we are in the habit of not treating it as a book, a unit at all, but simply as a collection of separate stories and sayings. We take it for granted before we look at the, at the text that the burden of them, or at least of as many of them as affect us, is either moral advice or comfort for those in trouble, right? How many recognize sometimes that's why we're coming to the Bible, trying to find some moral boundaries for the human existence or some comfort for whatever it is that we've got going on in our lives? He said, so we read them when we do in small doses, a few verses at a time. We browse through, waiting for something to strike us. When the words bring to our minds a soothing thought or a pleasant picture, we feel that the Bible has done its job for us. It seems that the Bible is for us not a book, but a collection of beautiful and suggestive snippets. And it's as, it, it is as such that we use it. The result is that we never read the Bible at all. For God does not mean Bible reading to function simply as a drug for fretful minds. The reading of scripture is intended to awaken our minds, not to send them to sleep. God asks us to read the Bible as a book, a single story with a single theme. We're to read it as a whole. And as we read, we're to ask ourselves, what is the plot of this book? What is the real subject? What is it really about? Unless we ask these questions, we shall never reach the point from which we can see what it is this, it is saying to us about our own individual lives. When we do reach this point, we shall find that God's real message to us is more drastic and at the same time more heartening than anything that human, human religiosity can conceive. So I, I know what it is for us to read the Bible when life has hurt us, confused us, we have a need, we run to the Bible. How many of you guys can remember back the last time you wrote, read the book of Job? Everything was going great when you read that book, right? <laughs> what, what was it that made you say, I, I need to read Job? You know, it wasn't like, hey, life with no questions. It was life was upside down, life hurt, and so you ran to the book of Job and you picked it up and you were looking for something that would put a Band-Aid on our existence. Uh, you know, I, I kind of do take issue with the amount of devotional materials that are out there in our world. Not that, that devotional materials, materials are horrible, but they are often designed this way. Does your life hurt and have questions? Here, put this on it. Does your life hurt and have questions? Here, put this on it. And, and then the Bible becomes this patch job for my pain and my woes. And so when it touches us and it makes us feel better, we feel like, ah, oh, I read the Bible and I got something out of it. But does it dawn on you that's not how the Bible's given to us? That, and I love the way Packer says this, the Bible's not here to put us to sleep, to calm us. Ah, oh, calm your, your anxious soul with the Bible. Well, there is a dimension to that, but the Bible is here to awaken our souls to something that God has to say about his world and his purpose and why we exist. 
So when we go to the Bible, let's go to the Bible with that sense that God's got a story that he's trying to awaken us to. And that story will inform quite a bit of our suffering and our difficulty and whatever it is that we're needing in this world. All right, I left my little gadget. I don't know where I left it, but put, put that, uh, there we go. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at the Bible this way. This is what's called the Bible bookcase. And so you open up the Bible there and you've got Genesis all the way over here on the left. I hope you guys can read that okay. And th these are good sections of the Bible. And this is how the Bible's actually grouped together, right? So when you open the Bible up, you have the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have history. And, and really, when you've traveled through the law and history, you have run through the experiences of the people of the Old Testament. So it's recording their experience, their life with God. Every moment that God thought was significant for us to know is in that first section, law and history. Along the way, there's songs and poetry and wisdom that get interjected into that law and that history. And that's all collected together. So when you read through the Bible and you get past Esther and you pick up and you start reading the next section, you're not chronologically continuing. Okay, you're, you're actually now starting to read comments about what happened to these people. And that, that's why it can be a little hard to read the Bible and find out where does this stuff go. And then the next section, you get past the Song of Solomon and you bump into Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and, and all the, the prophetic books. And next week you'll learn some things about that. That, but this is how the Bible's laid out. And then there's, there's big prophets and little prophets, right? Just has to do with the size of the book. And there's chronology in there. But they're all commenting on that first two sections, the law and the history. And if and you remember, Genesis covers a huge span of time. Exodus, Leviticus, and half of Numbers, most of it covers a year. One year span of the people of God pulling up to Mount Sinai where God reveals himself to them in detail, which is why we've been studying Exodus, because of the importance that's placed there. And so here's where we are today. We've ventured past, we're going to get past Exodus today. Joshua, the purple books there, Joshua, Judges, they're now moving into the promised land. We all know that part of the story. When they move into the promised land, God's plan was that he would rule over his people in a land. And you're learning that if you're reading through the, the book along with us. The promised land was to be that land where God would have a people that would, he would particularly relate to and he would rule over them. He would be their king. And to get that illustrated, we're going to get the installment today of the idea of a king and a kingdom. In a land, there would be a king. And so we get introduced to this aspect of, of what it is to follow God in a kingdom. So if you're looking for the kings in the Bible, go back to that other slide for a second. If you're looking for the kings in the Bible, they get introduced to us in the purple books there in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And then you're going to follow them through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicle and 2 Chronicles. And they're going to highlight this king who rules over this people as an illustration to illustrate for us, like we, we met an illustration last week. The tabernacle was an illustration of God dwelling with his people. All these kings are an illustration of God being king over his people. And that's why we use the word partial. It's a partial picture. But let's pick up this language here. In your outline there, I put kingdom. What is a kingdom? 
Well, it's a combination of two words, king and dom, which comes from domain, right? So it's a king in his domain. The great storyline of God installs and clarifies that the nature of God's created world is a kingdom, a domain in which God rules as king. Right, don't, don't escape this because we don't live in a, in a governmental kingdom. We've grown up in America. We've grown up in democracy. We've grown up where every ounce of foreign policy treats democracy like it is the best thing that man could ever do for man is to spread the authority amongst the people and let the people collect ideas for the sake of governance and leadership. Now, that's the idea you and I have grown up in. Can I just break this to you and shock you a little bit? That's not the idea found in the Bible. The government found in the Bible is not a democracy. And so for us who have been taught that democracy is the best form of government on the earth, there's all kinds of abuses of power throughout the world and the way to step in and rescue, whether it's people in the Middle East or, or communist countries that, that we've grown up with this battle is to impart to them the gospel of democracy. We could just give people the right to rule themselves. The people who try to rule themselves have got issues. Right, you're not closing your eyes to that, right? You collect together a people that the Bible describes as fallen and depraved and whose minds have been influenced by sin and they're broken. And now you collect all them together in one room and you say, hey, what do you think ought to happen next? Now you've, you've put authority in the people. Now when you come to read the Bible, you're gonna find out that that's not how God relates to his creation. And it's very important that we get this because you can live your whole life trying to force God into a democratic mold, trying to force upon God the idea that it's best if we rule ourselves. And, and then we invite you, God, to be a part of helping us do whatever it is that we've come up with. So remember, you and I approach this topic today. We, we talk back to rulers, don't we? You watching the news? You, you, how have you been taught to speak to Barack Obama? Disrespectful? Take him to task? Criticize every idea? Threaten to get him out of office? Because right? where is the power located in our thinking? It's in us. And we have a representative government. So we empower other people not to impose things on us, we empower other people to represent us. So here, dude, we're going to elect you. A bunch of us get together. We're going to empower you. You take our ideas to Washington. And you get them to do what we say you ought to be doing. And do you understand that's upside down in the Bible? God's not looking to be steered or directed by us. The opposite is true. God seems to think he has the power to steer and direct us and to tell us whatever he wants to tell us, whenever he wants to tell us, and he expects that we're going to obey him. 
Now, that might make you read the Bible differently, right? Because this is not a collection of ideas that God is waiting for us to adjust or vote on. This is God saying, hey, the way in which the universe needs to be run is I'm going to need to be in control completely, and you're going to need to do what I say. And I know that sounds like, to an American, that sounds like, oh, what kind of God is that? What kind of God would do that? Well, part of me wants to say a God who wants to rescue us from idiots. Because I've just found man doesn't govern himself very well. And I don't have to talk about any of y'all to say that. I can just talk about me. Right? Early on in life, I figured out ways to govern my own life. And, you know, I was as fast as I could go running down a trail that was going to destroy me. And God in his mercy stepped in and redirected me. And God in his mercy stepped in and said, hey, Keith, don't do that anymore. And don't do that anymore. And he expected me to obey. And quite honestly, I'm very grateful that those things no longer exist in my life. Because I watched the very things that I was doing as a young person destroy the people that were in my world. Right, I've got a, you guys know some of my family story. So I've got generations of people who were destroyed by things like alcohol, destroyed by it. Well, I picked up alcohol when I was 12 years old and started to figure out what that was all about. And I'm very grateful that God stepped in and had a, an opinion. And not just a, hey, if you want to try this, but he had something to say to me. That was good. But it did lead me to say no to some things in my life. Say no to them, not because I didn't want to do them, but to say no to them because I was willing to let him rule over me. And I'm glad I did. I'm not up here today with chains around my feet saying, Come be a Christian. It's the most miserable thing in the world. <laughs> but it does have boundaries. And there's a God with an opinion, right? And you, you meet this concept. I don't want to get too far. I'm, I'm going to skip what's really in the book that you guys were reading in the God's Big Story book. Um, but, but look here real quickly, 2 Samuel, just to jump us into this concept that onto the scene is going to come a king is going to come on the scene. And God's word is trying to prepare for the day in which he's going to show up. So, you know, the first king in the Old Testament was a man named Saul. I'm not going to go into the details of how he got chosen and who he was, etc. And then the most famous king in the Old Testament was a man named David, who was king after Saul. And so we hear this language here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of God conversing with King David and making him king over his people. Look in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So the prophet is being told what to say to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. All right, this is, this is partial language. This is partially going to take place. But you do realize in heaven, this is going to full, completely take place. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Right here comes this kingdom language. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there is this throne idea. God's kingship over the world is like a kingdom where there is a king. And God installs this idea partially in the Old Testament. And then it moves forward towards a day when the king will show up on earth and fully establish his kingdom. And quite honestly, it is not yet completely fully established. So even today, you and I live in a partial dimension. Now we're further along than where King David was, but we're not yet fully there, right? And so can I just walk you through real quickly how this king and this kingdom operates through scripture? Because if you don't see this in the Bible, then, then you read the Bible like it's, a, you know, I don't know, some kind of a fluffy advice book. It's a story about a kingdom, right? So that's why this book that we've given you guys to read alongside the Bible is, is so helpful. All right, let's back up into creation for a moment. I'm going to walk through these pretty quickly. Creation, the moment when nothing exists, opens with the creator who plays the part of the king decreeing things into existence. You've seen that? I mean, this is what God does in creation. He just says, let it happen and it happens. Let it happen and it happens, right? Everything just responds to his command, right? If you read through Genesis 1, I'll just pick a couple of highlights there in your outline. Verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And it was so. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And verse 28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, all right, now here comes this command format, this sense that God speaks to his created order as though he has the right to command it, not to ask it to volunteer, not to seek a vote from it, but just to command it. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So when man gets created, he has an assignment. The creator seems to have the right to assign to his creation, you're a plant, you bear seeds. You're the light, you go there, and you're a human being, and you do this. So the creator's got rights. We move on in Genesis chapter 2, and God gets more detail with man. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden." But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, right? So God 
occupies the right to create boundaries for his creation. He's already done that. He called the day, the light day and the darkness night. God decides, you know, trees and animals are not going to cohabitate. We're not going to have like plant life and animal life getting together. There's going to be boundaries. So everything's got boundaries when God creates it. And God gives man boundaries. You can do all this, but this here you cannot do. And, and man is expected to respond how? In submission to whatever it is the creator said. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now listen, these are interesting things if you sit down and contemplate this setting. Here is God looking out at creation. Here is Adam that he's made who is by himself. God labels the situation. It's not good that Adam should be alone. Well, did he ask Adam whether Adam wanted company or not? I mean, did, didn't God have any idea what kind of headaches were going to come into his life? <laughs> if he gave this man a woman? God didn't ask, did he? God did what God did, assuming that he had the right to do what he did. And not only that, woman comes along and she's just not exactly like man in a variety of ways. They're going to they're gonna come together and become an expression of oneness, but they're quite different. Did God ask Adam what he would like in the differences? Does Adam seem to have a say-so over this creative moment? Or is this just the way the universe is designed to be run? The creator doesn't consult. He just does. And the creation just receives what he does. Listen, this, this is what's at the heart of the great debates today over sexuality and same-sex marriage and transgender issues is in the history of our existence as a species, there's a God who exercised his right to make everybody the way he decided for them to be. And there was, there was no polling here. There was no opportunity for Adam or Eve to respond with, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be this gender. I want to be that gender. That, that doesn't exist here. Now listen, in today's world, doesn't that sound like, well, that should have existed. There's something really, really wrong with that. Every person should have the right to choose for themselves. That, that's what being educated as a Western thinking person in modern time will do for you. It'll make ideas that have been around since the foundations of the world sound crazy, stupid, out of bounds. But this is, this is where we all began, with a God who exercised his right to create us. Right? This is how a kingdom operates. There's a king, and the king decrees into his kingdom whatever it is that he will. Right? So we scoot forward in our timeline to Mount Sinai. Right? A couple of quick thoughts from there. Listen to the way in which God does what he does. Exodus 19, verse 3, it says, The Lord called to him out of the mountain. So Moses has come up for a visit with God. God says to him, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. All of it is the Lord's. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so then when God brings them near to himself, a few verses later, he introduces what he's expecting from them. He says that God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we go on and we get the Ten Commandments from here. So, I mean, when you hear the Ten Commandments, these commands that require you to treat people a certain way, to treat your parents a certain way, to treat one another a certain way, to not defraud each other and steal from each other, commit adultery, to, to not even covet and have in your heart a desire to have a life that's not yours, to have nothing in your life that's more important than God. Those ideas come from God, and he speaks them like he's got the right to expect that from us. I mean, do you, do you take issue with the idea that there's this people, this group of people, they're in Egypt, now, they're in tough circumstances, but they're still, they're in Egypt. And God exercises his right to summon them to him. That entire people group, you come to me. Matter of fact, you're coming to me because I'm going to inform you that you're mine. Wait, do we get to vote on this? Do we get to have a conversation about this? What if we don't want to be yours? What if we really like some of the gods in Egypt? Because, you know, they really were cool. They got, you know, little bull-looking guys, and they just... They just on your mantelpiece, they're awesome looking. And, and I actually think some of them helped us. Yeah. So what's this idea that we don't get to have any other gods but you? That's, that's a little possessive. I mean, who do you think you are anyway telling us that we can't do anything? Why do you get to create boundaries for us? Do you understand none of this is in the Bible? It's a kingdom. And in the kingdom, it's normal that the king just says, this is how creation is. So I'm calling you to be my people. And don't do this and don't do that. So he creates boundaries and he creates relationship and he acts as though he has the right to do that. All right, when we read the tone of scripture, we're going to get introduced to all kinds of words like thrones and ruling and reigning and kings and servants, right? That's the language that's all throughout scripture. John Frame says the Hebrew and Greek words, that's what the original Bible's languages were. The Hebrew and Greek words for king occur over 2,800 times in Scripture. Add to those the reference to kingdom, the corresponding verbs and related forms, and we can see that kingship is indeed pervasive in Scripture. If you're not going to understand something about who God is and what he's like, that word king comes into play quite a bit. So we might need to get around that language, right? So we hear Psalm 47, we hear the psalmist. Remember, those are the, these guys over here, the psalms. They're commenting on the revelation that's been given through the history of God revealing himself to his people. So we read these kind of things in the psalms. Clap your hands, all people. 
Shout to God with songs of joy for the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, right? So this is the imagery that you hear when, when the king takes his place before his people, right? All the fanfare, you know, whatever it is, you've watched a Caesar movie or you've watched some old English king picture and the, here comes the king, right? And there's pageantry and there's trumpets and there's noise and the crowds are cheering. Right, that's what this is. It is that imagery of a king ruling his people. The, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Psalm 95. This is a common language of scripture. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his, his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's what you did when you came before the, a king. You came before the one whom you recognize that the realm belongs to him. And you are being graced with an audience to come before him. And when you came, you came humbly and you bowed before the king and you honored him. All right, who stole this idea from whom? Did God steal this language from a bunch of English blokes who set up a, a kingdom? Maybe a couple of Caesars? Did, is that where God got this language from? Or did they get that language from him? Who was king first? Right, so this pageantry, this sense is, this is how God is. Right, interesting insight from medieval times, this quote from Medieval Life and Feudalism, it says the king was in complete control under the feudal system. He owned all the land in the country and decided who he would lease the land to. He therefore only allowed those men he could trust to lease land from him. However, before they were given any land, they had to swear an oath to remain faithful to the king at all times. The men who leased land from the king were known as barons. They were wealthy, powerful, and had complete control of the land they leased from the king. So there was this sense that if you lived under a king, if you were a baron or if you were a, a, a land server under a baron, everybody had this awareness. The king owns everything. He owns the realm. So if you go out and farm this land you are making use of what belongs to the king. And if the land produces fruit and you are benefited by it, that benefit came because of the king. And this is why it was appropriate for kings to charge tribute, taxes, because they possessed all the land and all the goodness you're experiencing in your life, it's because of my benevolence I've let you use the land. And so they paid tribute to the king. Right? Can, can I say when you, when you bump into this in the Bible, you find it in places like the tithe? 
Right? The tithe is us recognizing that we are renting space from the king, the land that we live in, the air that we breathe, the next beating of your heart. The king provides all of that. And so when we live our lives, it's not out of bounds for that king to require a response to him. That's why we give to God because he's the king over everything that exists, right? Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is God's. All right, now fast forward. We're at Mount Sinai, but fast forward a good bit here. Past David and, and that time frame, all the way to the New Testament, right? I'm gonna do this really fast. So turn to Mark with me. Because into this realm comes the king. Into a realm where there are earthly kings, but into this realm comes the king. And he announces his entrance in the Gospel of Mark, actually in all the Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of Mark. It's pretty concise here, so you can see it. In chapter 1, this king is coming. Now, this is the storyline in the Bible. And if you miss this, you, you, you cannot understand some things about what God does in your life and what he calls you to do in your life. There is a kingdom here that's being contested. There's a fight a battle for the kingdom because there is a usurper king loose on planet earth and he has stolen authority from God and God has every intention of taking it back and possessing all authority. Now, if, you, if you're not familiar with your Bible, this character I'm talking about is the serpent who was in the garden with Adam and Eve and when he tricked them he stole from them the dominion to rule over this world. Remember God put him in the garden and he said, here's your assignment, guys. You live this way for my glory and you have dominion. Subdue the earth. Well, when he tricked them, he stole from them the, that authority. And he's actually referred to in the Bible as the God of this world, the ruler of this world. But he's not God. And in God's story, God is going to allow him to operate in that authority for a time. And then God's going to take that authority back to himself completely. Now, God's never out of control, but this is the storyline God reveals. So when Jesus shows up, it's interesting that before Jesus begins his public ministry, he has a meeting with this usurper. The Bible says that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, do you remember how he was tempted? Remember the things that the devil said to him? The devil acted like he had the right, like he was a king, and he had authority to give Jesus the things that Jesus had come here to earth to get. And in a way, he did. And he tempted Jesus to put his life under the authority of the devil. That's what was happening in those temptations. Hey, man, why don't you just take the shortcut I'm providing for you? Well, for him to do that, he would have to submit to the authority of the devil. So this is a war for authority. 
Right, so appointment number one there in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, is Jesus contending with the ruler of this world. He overcomes every temptation, and now he begins his ministry. And then in verse 14, it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is how Jesus began his ministry. And the words that are used here, they fit in a kingdom because they are, they are the heralding. They are the proclamation. When you hear that word preaching and proclamation in the Bible, it fits this kind of a situation. It, you know, go back in your mind, medieval setting, you know, brown, black, and white are the only colors that exist. And you're in town square and into town square on some horse with some stuff flowing off of it comes a guy who's well-dressed and he looks like he's in color. Everybody else is in black and white in these movies. And he gets off and with great authority, he summons all the people, hear ye, hear ye. And he calls all the people together and they know to come. And he pulls out this scroll and he begins to read it. And the scroll's got a mark at the bottom of it so they know where it's come from. It's come from the king. And he heralds or proclaims the declaration of the king that everyone in the realm is to heed. That's what verse 14 and 15 are. It's Jesus come to proclaim, hear ye, hear ye, all inhabitants of the earth. This is what the king says to you. The time for the kingdom to come is at hand. And God calls on you to repent and to believe in his good news and that's the message that Jesus begins. Now, this gets overlooked. If you just follow, I'm not going to read all these passages, right? But if you've got headings in your Bible, you'll see some of these groupings here, right? The next thing Jesus does is he calls his disciples to him. Now, every one of these acts, this is important to see, every one of Jesus' acts on earth was about validating and expressing his authority, and this is important because if you're in the world today and you're trying to figure out what God are you going to believe in? What belief system are you going to submit yourself to? There's so many of them out there. Well, what are, why are all these stories in the Bible? Why do they contain the stuff that they contain? Well, can I just say it to you this way? It was Jesus' demonstration of his authority that created the storyline that you have in the Gospels. It was Jesus moving from one place to another to do maybe more than one thing, but one thing primarily, to demonstrate that he had authority in this world. And so he does stuff that people can't explain. He does stuff that only the person who created all this stuff could do. So he comes up to man, and just like at Mount Sinai, and just like when man gets put in the Garden of Eden, he summons man to himself. And he tells his disciples, drop everything you're doing, lay your businesses down, your nets down, and your interests down, and come and follow me. Who do you think you are? You want me to quit my job and do what? Well, Jesus assumes he's the king. And he therefore has the right to tell you, stop doing whatever it is. But that's your favorite thing in the world. I know. Stop doing it. And come and do this. And he calls his disciples that way. And they leave everything. And they go follow him. And then you keep following these stories. Next thing you know, he bumps into a, a person who's got a demonic issue going on inside of them. And one place after another, Jesus visited and he took authority over demons. That's what he was doing. He was taking authority over the things that humanity couldn't stop from happening. 
situations where people were controlled by demonic forces, Jesus walked up in a word and spoke to them and they obeyed. Remember, everybody freaked out. All the freak out moments with Jesus are about him demonstrating his authority, right? They're, they're in the boat, remember? The waves have hit. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. And, you know, they're freaking out. We're all going to die. They, they rattle Jesus. Jesus, we're going to die. And Jesus just calmly gets up and speaks to the wind and the waves. And all the molecules in the world obey him. And immediately the wind stops and the waves stop. And what do they do? They freak out. They freaked out because they saw him demonstrate authority. He had authority over the created world. When he healed diseases, diseases that took people's lives and put them in conditions that no one could fix, that brought them to death and no one could stop it. And Jesus just walked up to that and fixed it just like that over and over and over again. What was he doing? He was demonstrating his right as the king. All of creation is his. It does whatever he says. And he was demonstrating that to people. And there's a particular point, and Mark moves pretty fast here. Look in chapter two there. This is interesting. Verse five it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, right, now here's a paralyzed person and Jesus is gonna heal him. But listen to the way he heals him. Jesus does this kind of stuff on purpose. This is not an accident. Right, I'm going to use my words in such a way that's going to freak you out. He says, son, he's going to heal this guy. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this guy think he is? This is authority is always about that question. Who do you think you are? showing up here telling people that their sins can be forgiven. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, Pick up your bed and go home. Now, what did he just do in that? He obviously demonstrated his authority over sickness, but he wanted you to realize, I just don't have authority over the physical realm. I have authority to forgive you of your sins. So I'm going to marry these two together so that when that paralyzed guy there who can't move unless I overcome that, I'm going to demonstrate that I'm going to forgive his sins right now. And that freaks everybody out. And we get a little few verses later and we have this big controversy about Jesus eating things on the Sabbath and he breaks the news to them that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath as well. In other words, I have authority even over the law of God. So what was Jesus doing in all this time of ministry going from one place to another? He was demonstrating his authority. And when we get to the end of the Gospels, this is why Jesus' last moment of summing everybody together and he says to them, what? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and 19, the Great Commission begins with what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus came to this earth to take back authority 
in this world. And to take it from that usurper who had stolen it, who was misusing it and harming God's creation as a result. This is what Jesus' mission was about. Let me just do this because I know there's, there's a lot of things that we want to try and figure out what to believe in this world. What message do you believe? What messenger do you believe? There are all kinds of religions that have messages to them. There's only one person who ever in the history of man came and demonstrated that he had authority over everything. He could make the earth respond. He could control the weather. He could turn water into wine. He had authority over death. Something could die and he could reverse that. You could be sick with a disease that nothing can cure and he could fix it. The invisible spiritual forces of this world that harm people's lives, Jesus has power over them. There is no, you can do the research if you'd like and come back to me and let me know what you found. There is no one who's ever existed on this planet who demonstrated that he is not from here. Right? Only the creator who is outside of his creation has the ability to defy the laws of science and everything else. He's not from here. He's outside of it. So he, it's, it's like he turns things on and off like a light switch. And no one else can do that. No one else. Buddha never did that. Muhammad never did that. They all claim to teach people how to live life, how to improve things, how to get along. But nobody stepped into this created realm and said, watch me control everything. I don't know about you, where do you want to put your faith? There's no one like Jesus Christ who's ever, ever existed. And he came to demonstrate that. I mean, you do realize he could have shown up and just gone immediately to the cross, shed his blood for our forgiveness, ascended into heaven, sat down back at the right hand of the Father and left us just scratching our heads going, what was that? He would have satisfied the law's demands by yielding his life and bringing forgiveness through his blood. But he took time to demonstrate over and over again, I have authority over everything. So the bookends of Jesus' life begins with authority and it ends with authority because this is a kingdom and that's the principles that guide it. All right, one more last picture of this kingdom. Here's the great conclusion of Earth's story. In the book of Revelation, you'll find quite some scenes around the throne of God. And here we have the introduction to that book in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John, who's the writer of the book of Revelation, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. All right, ask you a question. Where did Jesus come from? Well, he's always been. Grace to you from he who was and is and is to come. He's he got no beginning and he has no end. This, this person of Jesus Christ is God himself having come to earth. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of, king, of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. 
priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then later on in the book of Revelation, he says it this way. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, a lot of trumpets around thrones, blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, forever and ever, there's going to be this thing called a kingdom and it's going to be ruled by a king. That's always been what God was doing. That's always been the thing that God created. Now, just because I grew up in the land of democracy doesn't mean I get to impose on God's purpose my ideas. God's plan has always been that he would be the creator He would be the king over his kingdom. This domain, this realm, he would own it all. And everything from the molecules to my will are called to be in obedience to this king. That's the universe he created. And this verse says it'll go on forever and ever. It will always be this way. Now, if you and I are trying to live life and we don't have a king and a servant's mindset, then what on earth are we doing? Do you understand? If, if I'm the captain of my own ship, if, if I'm the king of my castle, my concept is totally out of line with God's. So what do I do tomorrow? Build my own kingdom? Well, there's a creature in the Bible who tried that. It's not a happy ending for him. Let me go back to Mr. Packer here before we conclude. He says, what do we find? We try to read the Bible as a single unified whole with our minds alert to observe what it's really about. Well, the first thing we find is that this book is not primarily about man at all. Its subject is God. He, if the phrase may be allowed, is the chief actor in the drama, the hero of the story. The Bible proves on inspection to be a factual survey of his work in this world, past, present, and to come, with explanatory comment from prophets, psalmists, wise men, and apostles. Its main theme is the work of God vindicating his purposes and glorifying himself in a sinful and disordered cosmos by establishing his kingdom and exalting his son, by creating a people to worship and serve him. And ultimately, by dismantling and disassembling this order of things. So rooting sin out of his world entirely. It is into this larger perspective that the Bible fits God's work in saving man. Our little story is part of a much bigger story. We are part of what God is doing to restore his kingdom in which he rules over everything and every human heart. Now, now what difference does this make in the way you and I approach our lives? I think I wrote this in your outline. Two thoughts. If I approach this Jesus, whoever he is, in a way that makes man the priority and the center, then I will end up with a definition of Jesus that serves me. Right? 
I'm at the center. In other words, my religion will be about how to get God to serve me and to fulfill me and to make me happy. But if I approach this Jesus in a way that makes God the priority and the center, then I will end up with a view of life that features me serving the king who is the creator, who established the story of our existence rather than him seeking to serve my purposes and agenda. This makes a big difference in how we do life, doesn't it? Like if I've begun my life and I'm staring at the end of my shoes and my existence is what I'm primarily honed in on and what would be good for me, what will fulfill me, what, what's pleasurable, what's fun, what's thrilling, what gives me a good script that I'm interested in, right? So, and then I discover that there's a God out there and he's loving and you know, he's a granddaddy kind of guy and he just likes to lavish good, kind stuff on people. So I invite this God into whatever I've come up with. Here's the ideas for my life. I'm going to start praying and I'm going to start asking God to get involved in furthering the ideas that I've come up with. And then like most of us, we start bumping into a God who doesn't seem to want to answer our requests. And then you know what we do? We act like Americans and we criticize the president. We find fault with God. What kind of God is this? He didn't. So-and-so died. This didn't happen in my life. I went through heartache. Okay, why is it that I'm postured that way? Because my concept of my existence is I start with me and I invite God to come be a part and to bless it. But in the Bible, creation is created by the king for the king and everything that exists serves him. And by the way, God called that good. Now, I know today that's not called good. But can I just tell you this? You are going to live underneath authority. If you've never thought about it, you are going to live underneath authority. And I think all the authority possibilities are present in the Garden of Eden. You've got God, you've got the devil, and you've got yourself. You're going to live right now in this moment. I don't even have to know your name. I promise you, you are living your life underneath one of those authorities. And they are ruling in your life. When Eve took authority and decided, I will make decisions for me. I'm not going to obey what God said. I will make decisions for me. How many of y'all recognize that was not a good day? But it was freedom don't we love freedom? I mean, we're Americans. We love freedom. She exercised her freedom. She made her own decision. Was, was that a good thing? Seriously, was that a good thing? How many of you guys think if she had stayed in communion with God and walked underneath his authority, life would have been better for her and Adam if they had done that rather than exercising their freedom? See, we have got freedom in a weird place in our lives. Not everything is a good freedom. I'm in South Louisiana, fishermen. How many of you guys know that when you catch that fish and you put him in your boat, he may have had a dream of being free from the water. He is free from the water. 
All these years, he just hasn't been able to escape the water. And finally, ah, I'm free. And finally, within moments, he will be dead. Yeah. Was that a good freedom? He's free from the water. Listen, don't buy the idea that any form and every form of freedom is a good freedom. It's not. That's the lie that the devil told to Adam and Eve. You need to be free of these boundaries that God's put on you. Be free from that. And it was horrible. So it might be better for me to find out how to fulfill the purpose that's been given to me rather than to go find my own. Listen, you are in this building right now. You are either under God's authority, you are under the God of this ru- the world, his authority, the devil, or you're doing your own thing. And quite honestly, if you're doing your own thing, you're really doing what he wanted you to do. So I guess I could say there's really only two authorities, the God of all time and the God of this world. And if you buy the God of this world, then you all of a sudden you think that you're in control, but you're really not. This is the storyline of the Bible. So what do we do with it? Ben, you can go ahead and come back up. What do we do with this idea? Well, I guess the first question would be, where do you feel like you are? When you look up and you say, who's, who's framing my life? Who's calling the shots? Who's in authority over my... When you look up, who, who do you see up there? All right, you want to do a quick survey real quick? Look around at your, the relationships in your life, the ones that you've disposed of, the ones that you've tolerated, the ones you've moved toward, the ones that you've moved away from. Okay, who called the shots in that? Who made those decisions? This person's a friend, this person's now an enemy. I will treat this person well, I will treat this person poorly. Who's calling the shots in that? Do you look up and you see God has guided you and led you to treat people a certain way? And you've submitted to that? And maybe you've argued with God. I know I have. Hey, God, well, I, God, do you know what this person did? Do you know how difficult this is? I mean, hey, there's moments where you're kind of wondering, okay, am I hearing you right, God? I, this, this cannot be what you want because that's a difficult human being right there. <laughs> and yet, at the end of the day, I need to be able to say, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, listen, go through your life. This is where, you know, I'm hoping you're not attending church on Sunday mornings because you've got nothing else to do. But if you're here because you want, to, you want there to be a reality of this God in your life, then in reality, you're doing stuff. Your, your checkbook looks a certain way. You spent your time in the last week a certain way. And as you look up, who, who decided that? Did you... Did you decide that? Was it just some temptation that came along that decided that for you? Does pleasure guide you? Whatever's pleasurable, that's what I do. Whatever keeps me from walking down a path of difficulty and suffering, that's what I do. But remember, the king said, you shall have no other gods before me, not even self-preservation. And you know how many of us pull that card out before God and we say, God, that's not easy. That cannot be what you want. That's not pleasurable. That cannot be what you want. Or the other side of that, well, God would want me to be happy. 
Right, so we've concluded that I don't even know what this God has to say, but I, I know this one thing. Whoever he is, he wants me happy. Does this make me happy? Well, yes, it does. Well, then that would be what he wanted. But what we talked about today never enters our mind. So you look up this morning, who is in authority in your life? When Jesus shows up on earth, he gives this invitation then and he gives it to us now. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Come to the king. Give your life back to him. Everything in the world is truly his. He wants it back. And he sent his son to take it back. And quite honestly, not in an ugly way. I, I am so glad that God took my life back from drugs and alcohol and revenge and unforgiveness and pride and laziness and jealousy and sexual immorality. I am so glad God took my life back from those things. And please don't sit here today and think your life is a pretty life that God's trying to take it back from. Because you know what it's like to get by yourself, and I can remember what it was like to lay in bed at night and feel this empty gnawing on the inside of me that everything I was trying wasn't working or was producing these question marks inside of me. And you know what that's like. Listen, the God who wants your life, he wants it back. He wants to rescue you from that. That's not a bad deal. But he's going to create boundaries. Listen, the, whatever authority is in your life right now is creating boundaries right now. Don't think that you can ever live a boundless life. Your own appetites will create boundaries for you. Do you know how many addicts I've related to through the years who gave themselves to a drug or alcohol or sexual pleasure in some way that it, it created the boundaries of their lives? Oh, but it was pleasure. It was pleasure that they grew to hate and to wish they could be free of it because that thing starts to have authority over you because you gave it authority. Jesus Christ came to take back authority and to bring you under his authority. He is a benevolent, good, loving, caring, gracious, sacrificial king. And this morning, he wants your life back. So let me ask you to do this. Let's stand up together and let's pray for a moment. And everybody in this room, remember, you're under some kind of authority. So either right now, you have never transferred the ownership of your life to this king. That could be you. Or you can remember that you have transferred the ownership of your life to this king at some point. You've started to act like you're in control again and you're living your life right now under your own authority. You're doing it your way. Similar responses. But if you've never come to a place in your life where you've recognized, my life was created by God for God and I need to give it back to him. It belongs to him. If you will, take the out of your imaginary pocket in your heart, the title deed of your life. I know this because I buy and sell cars constantly in my household. So we show up with our beat up car 
and we sign it and it becomes someone else's problem. <laughs> and the God of the universe invites you to do that. Now, listen, all the dents in your car, all the broken stuff in it, all the way the wheels are coming off of it, you know the problems that you got, right? He'll take it just like it is, just like it is. You don't have to paint it, you don't have to fix it, but you do have to sign it over. And when you do sign it over, it fully becomes his. And then you gotta have no problem with where he parks it, if he paints it, if he decides to smash it, whatever he decides to do with it, it's his, right? So if you've never done that, that's how you come into relationship with this God. You're really not in a relationship with this God when God is invited into your world to serve your purpose. You come into relationship with God when you repent, when you turn your life over to him and you receive him in your life. So let's bow our heads together. Maybe that's where you are and you can do that right now. Here in the presence of God, as God gathers with us, you can have this conversation with him. You use your own words, but you speak to God right now. You tell him if that's where you are. Admit it to God. Say, God, I, that's where I'm at. I've been living my life, and I've been the one in control of it. It's not going well. Lots of challenges and problems. But God, what I hear this morning is that you created my life and, and you want it back. And something in my heart tells me I should give it back to you. So God, that's what I do. I take my life today. I confess that it belongs to you. I confess Jesus Christ, you are the king over all of creation and everything is yours. And I recognize you came to take my life back and you came to forgive me of all my sins, all the beat up parts of my life. This morning I ask for you to give me that forgiveness. You said you had authority to forgive sins. I ask you today, forgive me of my sins. And today, God, I sign over my life I give it back to you. I, I don't know fully what you're going to do with it because I'm still learning about you. But the one thing I know is it's right for my life to be yours. I don't, I don't want to own it anymore and I don't want anybody else to own it. I want you to own it. So God, here's my life. Here's the date on the title deed where it has your name on it now. Today, June 26, 2016. My life is yours. Listen, if you're here and you can remember there was a day when you knew you already did that, but you have been fighting with cooperating with God, obeying God, doing whatever it is that he's called you to do. And here you are this morning hearing a reminder that this universe, this kingdom has a king who reigns over it. This morning, God is reminding you that's how the kingdom operates. Your life is not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And maybe this morning for you, you just need to take out that title deed and have a look at it again and see whose name is on it. It used to be yours. 
but you signed it to him. You gave it to him. You trusted him. And this morning, can you too turn to God in, in brokenness and repentance and say, God, I'm, I'm reminded today my life is yours. I, I, I don't want to live it my own way. I don't want it back, God. I know I've acted like I do. I don't. I want you to lead me and I want my life to be yours. So God, I, I turn from the ways in which I've been doing it my own way. What's God showing you right now? How are you doing this your own way? Well, tell God you're done with that. God, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm, I'm not doing it that way anymore. What do, you, what do you want me to do, Lord? You are the king. I'm going to follow you. What do you want me to do in this area? Right now, what's God telling you? What's he speaking to you about right now? How's he leading you to do something his way? versus the world's way or your own way. Let your heart get in agreement with him. God, I thank you that your story makes sense of our story. So God, whatever we did this week and however we came in here, Lord, the, what, a, what grace from you that we can walk out of here today, reminded that the big picture is there's a king who's restoring his kingdom and I get to be a part of that. And I'm eager to be a part of that. God, I want to serve in your kingdom. And I want you to be the king over my life. And so, Lord, as we leave here today, God, remind us in the most difficult of relationships, in the greatest hours of our temptations, when we're trying to find direction, God, remind us that we are yours. You are our God, our creator, and our king. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys. Be blessed this week.